We are live and got my chat window open here. Perfect timing. I'm just thinking that's a son-in-law with heels. Ah! You see me? Yes, sir. That man knows how to handshake. He's my man. <laughs> and there you got a chair. Thank you, Alright, so as I was saying, we're on lesson 54. And uh, as I went to the back end here, I think we have one, two, three, four, five, six, only seven books left. Three of them are one chapter each. So uh, <coughs> we're very close to being done here. I appreciate you. Uh, Working hard and then coming here. So we uh, open with the book of Hebrews. So as I put in the study guide, we're not necessarily going to go out, walk through line by line on this. Um, but this is uh, this whole letter is an argument. It is a uh, Calvacomer argument. So who wants to tell me what that kind of an argument is? Small to large, tall to short. Okay, Josh, go <laughs> Light, light and heavy. This is light to heavy. All right, so you think this is good. You should try these cookies. Wow, these are way over the top. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's like the, uh, um, I always found this to be a bit spurious, or confusing or spurious myself, but it's like when you, re you flip over the back of the movie, and they're like, if you liked Mission Impossible, oh, man, <laughs> this went yes. way over the top. You know, I think it's this. funny when it's like, this movie I never heard of. So, <laughs> but yes, the idea is a comparison. <laughs> and you're, <laughs> the idea is that if this was good, this is even better. It's exactly. a classic Jewish um, argue, uh, rhetorical device yeah. um, designed to, um, because it's so much easier to wrap your mind around something when you have a comparison. Amen. You don't know how you know it, if you look on the picture and you see the, and you see the, the car, it doesn't look nearly as big unless the person standing next to it. That's right. That's exactly right. Good. I hate those kind of cars. Yeah, <laughs> I do. Uh, I do want to greet Greg Upham and Wright and my good friend Jonathan Loveless, who are listening online with us tonight. There may be others, but they've chosen not to log in, so I don't know that they're there. They didn't want to put that password. So along those lines. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get that notification. Yeah. <laughs> so along those lines, why would Messiah ever need a comparison? Surely you can't get any better than that. There's no call the Homer argument for God. Like what's what's the deal here? Why do you think okay, that was good. even necessary? Good. Good. All right. I so mean, surely if you knew Moshe, you would know Mashiach. Well, like, that's not necessarily true, right? Why not? Surely the concept must have existed before and after Moshe. Concept, yes. Literal person, perhaps oh. not. That's right. Right? Okay. Yeah. Right. Surely the Pharisees knew that Mashiach was coming. Right. It's the argument of the person exactly. of Yeshua, right, mm -hmm. as not, the Messiah. Not just the concept. Of the concept. Yes. Right. 
That's good. That's good. But then there's another there's a layer to that too, because um, context here is really important. Whether this is post destruction of the temple, or post the the Jewish believers in Yeshua being kicked out of the temple by the Sadducees, who got particularly anti-Yeshua uh, towards the later stage here. Yes. They killed James by throwing him off the top of the temple. Yes. So um, either way, the, uh, the important thing here is that there is a sense of we've lost the only way we have to meet with God. The temple. Potentially. Because, well, no, no. So the point that I'm saying is that like, whether it's because of Yeshua or whether it's because the temple was destroyed, either way, the Jewish believers in Yeshua have lost that. Now, if it's because of Yeshua, which is my, my dad's theory, and I think sure. there's some sense here, sure. that's all the more reason for this letter because they're very tempted to say, well, forget Yeshua. Why? Uh, I mean, I can have Yeshua or well, I can have the temple. It's two ways, right? Yeah. I can, mm -hmm. I can give up on Yeshua and go back to the temple, which I know is right. Right. Or... And that's the big question. What what do I? What's is, the or? Is is it valuable? Should I do that? Is it worth the cost? Exactly. And it's important to note that this this discussion was not limited to these people. We're talking about Yeshua's uh, picture, but when it comes to the temple, I mean, the Pharisees after the temple was destroyed, they looked at it and they go, "Well, I guess I guess we have to rely on prayer and good deeds. That's yeah. our sacrifice to God." And the Sadducees said, "Oh darn! There goes my job." Do I have retirement? Is there? Yeah. And they don't exist anymore. Exactly. So this was a, a um, I don't, I, it's hard to wrap our minds around the day because we haven't had a temple in 2,000 years. This was an existential crisis in Judaism when no the question. temple was destroyed. No question. So even if this is, let's say, six years earlier and the temple's still standing and the Messianic Jews are being, the believers in Yeshua being kicked out, it's an existential crisis for them. Their entire faith world is falling apart and they don't know what to do. So let's let's just re research that for just a second to make sure that we're good with those that might be listening online and, and anyone who may be in Gastonia. So existential? Meaning No 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 no, no not existential. <laughs> no. Definition. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm talking about those folks who Adjective. May not have been following along with us until just now and don't realize that the temple and keeping the commandments is demonstrably a part of the life of every believer inside Yeshua. Mm -hmm. For a temple sect. Temple sect. They were there all the Judaism. time. Right. It, and uh, I was, <laughs> it's funny, uh, for those of you listening online, you might not know that uh, my family was up for my, uh, in New York for my sister-in-law's uh, funeral. Um, but several people asked me, mostly of the Catholic persuasion, what my faith was, because here I was arguing and proclaiming and uh, giving euphemisms about the master, and yet I was wearing a kippah. And, um, it's very confusing. It is confusing to them. It really is, especially Catholics, especially Catholics in New York. I, it's, it's, you know. So um, I gave a few different answers, but it wasn't until I was uh, on the plane coming home that I thought, Really, the, the, the best answer is we're Christians practicing Judaism. It leaves out the whole messianic, I don't know what that means thing. It leaves out anything that has to do with weirdness of when anything you're talking else. to Christians, it's 
Yeah. Right. So, to me, that opens the door to, well, why would you do that? Well, <laughs> uh, gosh, let's see how many people we know of that used to do that. Well, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's big. He was, he was, do you think Jesus was a Christian? Okay. Well, what did he practice? Well, Judaism. The Apostle Peter, Acts chapter 2, you know, verse 42, you know, they continued, you know, going to the temple. So, so um, I didn't come up with a, with a good answer like that. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, played the, well, we're, we're Christians, but we keep the commandments or we keep the Sabbath or, you know, all that stuff, which most of which are, are close, but no cigar. You know, and you tell an Orthodox Jew, you keep the Sabbath, and he's just going to laugh at you, you know. Mm. Or you, you tell even a conservative Jew that you keep the commandments, he's going to want to spend some time with you before he agrees that you actually might be keeping the commandments. Um, so anyway, um, that, that was where that, uh, that fell. I, I want to try and just help with the timing of this book. We're going through the Apostolic Scriptures chronologically. And if you'll recall, the last book we did, which was First Peter. Thank Sorry, you. I didn't wait to ask Joshua to give me permission. <laughs> yes, to it was First Peter. Was it First Peter? Yes, it was First Peter. So Caleb has uh, confirmed. I've got a second on that motion. Um, yeah, First Peter was probably written around sixty of the Common Era. Everybody's windows are closed right now, right? We can only hope. <laughs> if, not, if not, we have plenty of rags that you can use or. We can all just tip the car up on end and, you know, <laughs> tip the water. Up. We did that to my van driver once. That's a different story. Sorry to bring that up again. Um, so probably 60 of the common era. And that's where Joshua's going, uh, going to is there's a lot of question. When was the temple destroyed? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody. 70 AD. 70 in the common era. That's exactly right. So, when was the Jewish revolt? When did they say, wait a second, this task, tax thing is not going to cut it? What was it? Maccabees? No, 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 that's before. Okay. We had another revolt. That was in 66 of the Common Era. Okay? So, in 66, you didn't have a whole lot of stuff going on anyway because they're fighting. In 70, we've already got it destroyed. The surrounding of Jerusalem and, and all that and siege and you know we have fast days for that. So and, and it took well over a year. So 69, 68. So the question is, was the book of Hebrews written before all that started and they were still going to the temple? Because some of that some of the stuff, especially in chapter nine, talks about that. And then you got, well, suppose it was in this was written in seventy-three. There is no temple. And everybody's in the same bucket. But to Joshua's point, even earlier than 70, even earlier than the destruction of the temple, you've already got some <clears throat> angst going on. The Jews are being taxed. For the being Jews. Jews. For being Jews. Fiscus Judaica. Mm -hmm. The Jewish tax. And what are the Gentiles, believers in Messiah? Some of them are saying what? What? <laughs> No, I'm not Jewish. Now here I am, probably most of you are, saying uh, we're Christians, Gentiles, that are practicing Judaism. <laughs> not going to 
And here these guys are like, we're great. No, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> Get my checkbook out? Are you kidding me? No, but that's not going to happen. On the other side of the fence, the Jews are pushing these Gentiles out of the synagogues and out of the temple and saying, you're destroying our religion. We don't want to have anything to do with you. So that's, that's the setting that we're at here. And you've got a Christ of faith occurring. So the writer of Hebrews wants to show that's not going to be a problem. I got you second, I think. I got you first. Another issue, oh, let me that box with you this morning. Another issue that, um, that reason, question about why comparing Yeshua here. Um, so Yeshua's credentials are something that are difficult to establish from a Jewish perspective. You have prophecies. As were King David's. As were King David's. I mean, this is, you know, Messiah in general is going to be difficult to prove until, well, he's Messiah. Right, so, right. Until you check boxes, I mean, is he, is he not? Well, that's the only way to know. Um, but the credentials from additional Jewish perspective, you know, the the blessing from a rabbinic source, Yeshua is kind of the outlier here because True. the Pharisees, no they, they seem to respect him. The Sadducees, who are the religious leaders in many ways, they run the temple. They tried to kill him. They did kill him. So well, I would it, I would back up for just a moment. Let's not go, let's not go through that too fast. This is good. The Pharisees at first were skeptical, and then checked it out, as as any good Bible scholar would. And that's where we see them actually following him around in the Galilee. Right, although That's it shocking. does seem that they, they had they had a bit of a love-hate relationship. Depending on the Pharisee, there was kind of a lot sure, of variation sure. there. But the, so, anyway, so then the other element here, the other factor, and in addition to, okay, so who is Yeshua, and, and how do we know he's legitimate, um, you also have this component of, of, um, of the prophecy and the weight of what he's saying and who he is. It's like, well, how do we know that? Chapter 1 of Hebrews starts by talking about how we know, you know, the prophets, right? The Torah. We receive this via how? Mostly a messenger, which would be via angel, really, or via right. God through a, a vision or something. Um, yeah, so we, We've got at least two or three angel opportunities just in the birth of Messiah, right? If you're reading Matthew 1, Luke chapter 2, it's clear. But, but the writer of Hebrews wants to start by saying Yeshua is greater than the angels. So we don't need an angel to testify about Yeshua to prove that he's Messiah. Right. Yeshua by himself is good enough. And then on top of that, the other element they're also dealing with is the fact that then, and somewhat to some degree now, although I think it feels like it's more of an issue then based on some of the texts in the Epistolic writings, angels are a big deal. We see, we see get referenced multiple times in Paul's letters. Um, it seems like there's a lot of fascination with angels. Well, there still is, right? There is. There, even in Judaism today, there is still a certain degree, although it's been tempered somewhat to try to avoid any appearances of idolatry. Well, in, in the Mormon church, too. I mean, let's not make it easy. But yeah, yeah. Um, angels are cool. Yeah, angels are cool. The, the problem, though, is that there's a tendency, I think, in this case, it's like, well, who is Yeshua? Is he an angel? Is he something greater than that? Are the angels better than him? Do we really want to follow this guy when there's a newfangled Jewish religion that's promoting that, you know, so-and-so gave him golden plates, you know, and so on and so forth? Michael's yeah. half-brother. Yeah, yeah. Never listen to the angel whose name is Moroni. Um, which sounds like moron. That would be stupid. But, um, <laughs> that would be moronic. So the point is that um, the Bride of Hebrews is not only dealing with this temple crisis, he's also dealing with a lot of competition over 
okay, if you're not in the Pharisee camp, well, we have a we have a long list of options for you. Sure. Yeah. So, are we ready to dive in? I think you had one more comment. Go. Thank you. It was more of a question around. You're gonna have to speak up with the rain. I can barely hear you. Sorry. Sorry. Um, There was more of a question around. This isn't the first time their temple was destroyed. Correct. And we have seen elements of a time after the first temple was destroyed. uh, Some of the halakhic discussions and some of those things carrying over. Do you think any of that got passed on? To, throughout generations to this point that would have made it not as much of a crisis as it would have been if it was only the first time. No, and I'll tell you what. What was their conclusion after the first temple was destroyed? What, what did the sages conclude and, and lay out as the way to avoid this ever again from happening? Hymns. More often, establish pray the state of Israel. No. Now, if that were the case, then more than ten percent of them would have come back from Babylon, but they didn't. What was their number one raison d'être after they came back? Want to build the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. And there's one thing that caused this to happen, and we never want to let it happen again. How many golden calves were there, Caleb? One. Three. Thank you. Oh. So, why did they go in exile? Why did the temple get destroyed? Why were they taken captive? Primarily, according to the sages, because they didn't keep the commandments. So when they came back, they wanted to keep the commandments with a vengeance. Don't let this happen again. Are you nuts? Keep the commandments. That was the focus. Everything we have in the second half of that wall is all about the commandments. And these guys were all about being wise and knowing the commandments and studying the commandments and keeping the commandments. That was life in Judaism. That's what led us into the second temple. But by this time, now we've got problems with interpersonal relationships. and You've got Jews treating other Jews so badly, killing them, assassinations. That we, there ought to be some kind of a Netflix thing on that. Holy cow. That eventually Rome had to step in and go, what is wrong with you people? We're going to fix this. And they took over. Baseless hatred is the reason the second temple was destroyed, not the first one. They were convinced it was their lack of fidelity to God. They would not keep the commandments. They were disobedient. Because they were disobedient, God spewed them out of the land, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. They also had a promise when the first temple was destroyed that they would go back. Mm-hmm. in 70 years. Mm-hmm. Jeremiah specifically has prophecy here. Daniel knows about it. Daniel's reading that and going, I think the time is right now. <laughs> um, there's no promise when the second temple is destroyed. Not only that, but it was only 70 years 
after the first one was destroyed. Right. And so, you know, we're well beyond that now. Well, and you also have to think about the uh, the aftermath. I mean, the first temple's destroyed. There is it's pretty devastating, but there's actually a contingent of Jews that stay in the land for a while until they eventually all go down to Egypt. We have a fast day for one of the contingents. Yeah. Right. Get alive. Yeah. So, whereas with with Rome, um, so this. The destruction of the temple, I guess at this point, is not as dramatic because they haven't had the second, the full exile yet. Um, eventually, get to that stage. But the destruction of the temple is, is nonetheless a cataclysmic event in the religious system. Now, like I said, the Sadducean sect, which didn't exist in the first temple, it was the, the priests were just to their own group, but sure. Sadducees were a religious sect. They were completely based in the temple. With no temple, they seemed to have a reason to be. That's right. There's, there's nothing there. The... Um... There, there just wasn't enough time. We know people that are older than 70. There just wasn't enough time for them to lose heart and really wonder what in the world are we going to do. If the temple was destroyed in seven, since the temple was destroyed in 70 of the common era, prophesied by the way by my master, just a little footnote. Um, in 133, the folk of are finally done. So, you math scholars, 130-ish minus 70. I like it. You did good. So when Masada happens, the Jewish people are now completely decimated. Within 10 years, you've got the same amount of time that they've been exiled to Babylon. It's only getting worse, not better, and 10 years later, you've got decrees from Rome and the Caesars of that day that are just like, we're just going to kill you. Just, just get it. going to kill you. All right. So, last comment on history. This is actually Mr. on Hebrews. Spurlock. It's going to be on Hebrews chapter 1. Go ahead. I thought it was a cool comparison. So they compare Yeshua to angels? Yes. And show that he's better? Yes. In every respect. But then and they're pretty, he's pretty good at doing that over and over again. He does it a lot. Um, what's interesting is that the uh, the angel thing is not is, Yeshua is not the only gets compared to angels. Greg asked earlier why to compare Yeshua the Messiah to something. What about Hashem? In a roundabout way, Siddur does exactly that. If you when you're praying in the morning prayers in the Shema section, it specifically talks about how great and majestic and amazing all the angels are. Three different kinds. But they worship God. Absolutely. It is a somewhat indirect, but it is a whole Bahomer argument. Yeah. Um, and the same thing happens in the Shabbat prayers. We talk about you know, the sun and the moon and how majestic they are, and God made them. That's right. The idea is, there's a couple of points in the prayer ceremony in which we look at other either supernatural characters or, or, or creations that are oftentimes worshipped, and we acknowledge that God either made them or commands them or is greater than them. They worship yeah. him somehow. Some, some or another, he's better than them. So this is a very similar comparison to neighbors. Absolutely, yeah. And the whole concept of the Kolvacoma to me is it's just a great way to slam dunk a, a concept. All right, so this week's lesson had very little to do with that. I really want to look at that word ecclesia 
I'm really troubled, annoyed, ticked, flabbergasted, upset by the use of the English translators with the word ecclesia. So we've got two words pretty much in Hebrew that talk about an assembly or a congregation and you're stuck with one in, in Greek. The same thing happens with law, right? Only in reverse. In Hebrew, you've got one word for law, it's Torah. Tzav, command, is a verb. This week's portion. Yes, sir. Traveling along with us. Tzav. Um, but you've got namas in Greek, and you're one word for law. The law of the way a man should treat his son-in-law. One word for the law of vegetables and God's commands are all mixed together with pretty much the word love. Love chocolate, love my wife, love Scott Martin. Those are three different words in Greek. Three different words. In English, it's one word. And you've got to know by the context. It's the same way with law in the Greek. You've got to know by the context. Stichos. Chocolate. Phileo. Phileo. To love. To like. As a brother. Adelphos. Agape. Agape is unconditional, which I would hope I would have for God and for my wife. And I then, don't know about chocolate. I don't need to take us off on a rabbit trail. I'd have to look at the third one there. There's four, actually. The third one is like, like I love, you know, I love, I love chocolate. Um, uh, you know, as I, I appreciate it. Storge? It could be store. Yeah, storge. storge. And then there's uh, the erotic love, which we won't talk about with the kids. Here. <coughs> and it's eros love. That's you know, completely out of those categories. So, um, but in the same way that we can do that on the Greek side for love, we can do that on the on the command side with in Hebrew. We've got Torah, um, mitzvot. mitzvot. We've got uh, what's mitzvot. Kuchot or Mishpatim, Mishpatim, Edut, testimonies. You know all these, and they have all these nuances and so forth. So you can see that on the Hebrew side. Well, we're stuck on on the Greek side with ecclesia. This is an assembly. So, uh, if you uh, look at your study guide, uh, the Greek side of the law would be namos, and then that's it. The ecclesia is the congregation, right? Correct, or assembly, like, actually, like kahal. In Hebrew. Well, it's like a hal, but it's also another Hebrew word, right? So, was it Ada? Edut is truth. It's uh, what's his name? That sounds crazy. Um, Greg Upham will get it for me in a second. <laughs> Ma, what? Come on, Greg. Masim? No. No, 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 not Masim. Give me the word for, the other word for um, congregation or assembly. I know you know what it is, and I know what it is. I just can't get off the top of my head. So while we're waiting for Greg, 
to type that. <laughs> so cool. I love this. Yeah. I'm, I'm suspecting that eventually the weather's going to be so bad and the nuclear fallout will be so horrible that you guys can't drive here. And we'll all just be on like little talking head things. And, yeah, it'll be great. Type something. Oh, we did type something. Yes. A dot. That's exactly right. Thank you, Greg. God bless you. A dot. Not a dude. That's true. Okay. So I got Ecclesia 114 times in the Apostolic Scriptures. Yeah. 114 times. And 114 times. Out of 114, 108 times. We get the word church. Which actually comes from the German Kirche. Or Kirche. That's the equivalent of translating all the time. It says Christians as Catholics. Right. That's exactly yes. right. That's beautiful, yes. Yeah. yes. That's exactly I right. I mean, you think about the translation here. They're using a word that doesn't appear in Hebrew, doesn't appear in Greek, doesn't appear in Latin. That's right. As their uh, translation. It's unbelievable. All right. So, four times we got uh, assembly. I gave you two of them. Some cried out one thing, some another for the assembly was in confusion. They actually translated it as assembly. Probably, and this is where I was going with the, with the lesson, I thought because it's just a group of Gentiles. You know, the assembly was in disarray to be settled in the regular assembly. When he had said all these things, he dismissed the, the assembly. It would have been really weird because the church there, I guess. And then uh, to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Hebrews chapter 12. Sounds like it could, I would think, include Gentiles in that mix. And then we get congregation. Two times, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Well, who's in the wilderness? Besides him, who was the assembly? Who was the congregation? The children of Israel. What? The children of Israel. That's good. The children of Israel, right? So, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, Yeshua, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and so on. For he who sanctifies, Hebrews chapter 2, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Sounds familiar? Where is it from? I'm quoting Hebrews 2, but he's quoting Psalm 22, psalm 22 which is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah. So I guess my point here is, out of over 100 references to Ecclesia, we get a few that use assembly, and it looks to me like the English translators were kind of saying, well, well that's, that's not like the whole church. That may be just like the Gentile part, where it's referencing Gentiles. Or it may not have anything to do with religion, like in Ephesus. And then the congregation stuff seems to be always pointing back to the, let's call it Jewish stuff or the Jewish history stuff. Does that fly with you? Did you do you think that holds water? And if so, 
Well, let's just see what you have to say. Nobody has anything to say. Well, either I made a spe spectacular argument or you all just got shy on me. So it seemed to me that um, the first reference, the assembly in the wilderness. Um, congregation in the wilderness. Congregation in the wilderness. Clearly, the, uh, the English translators are uncomfortable using the word church there. Good. Um, I get that. And, 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 and I think that that's indication that they do not see... Well, they see ecclesia, they see this normal use as referring to a, a new entity and well, not isn't, isn't the people of Israel. Isn't that the crux of the issue? Which is a problem. It's a dispensational argument, at least. Of course. If not a replacement theology approach, which is to say that you know, God's with the Jews and now we have the church. Um, the, quote, the quote in Hebrews is sort of like an in-between that, I think. I think that the quote in Hebrews, it's a quote from the Psalms. Um, unless they translate it in the book of Psalms as church, which they don't, that would be weird. There would be no church in the book of Psalms, according to them. Well, we still got, we still got the same word in Hebrew. And they're choosing to use a different word. Still, I see it. Right. In Greek, but they're choosing to use a different word. Well, but it appears to me... It's a quote in that case. Right. But it appears to me that in both cases, congregation is used from a Jewish perspective or Jewish context, more historical context, where assembly seems to be a more current context or a Gentile context. Do you agree or disagree? Um, I hadn't necessarily seen that. Assembly could be a bit more of a loosely affiliated group or congregation is any more tightly held. I've got four times out of 108. A lot of those four, cut, though. Cut me some slack. I, I, I know. Four of those, three of those four, three of them are references to basically um, one is a reference to like what seems to be a mob. They're all Gentiles. The other is a reference to that's true. The one with the though the quote the assembly of the firstborn that comes from Hebrews, I, I again I think that's just simply a group of people. They're trying they, they feel uncomfortable saying church there for whatever reason. Um, and it's not an organized it's not necessarily meant to be an organized group, it's to be a collection. So, Alright. So, so I think it more like that. So I don't necessarily assembly congregation being a different issue. The so issue, out of, of hundred and eighty just to, to, to be clear where you're coming from, out of 108, I've got four. Three of them are dealing with Gentiles, and you're willing to beg off on the fourth one, but you don't think it's a Gentile play. Which is, which is the four? The four is the three assembly. Assembly, yeah. assembly okay. and two are congregation. I gave you it's, both for congregation. Yeah. I gave you two out of the four for assembly. And it's interesting enough, when you go back to Psalm 22, 22, and look and see what it's translated there, mm -hmm. it's assembly. Right. That's funny. Yeah, so they're... Completely inconsistent. inconsistent. That's right. This would be a problem thematic metaphors, but that's a different different. But I see congregation. We have a class on. I don't congregation as a diminished word from assembly. Nor do I. So I'm, I all I'm saying is I'm trying to come up with. I've got English translators almost across the board. From the KJV, you know, almost everyone you got. I've only got six times they chose not to use church. Now, that's the bigger deal. I wouldn't, I'm not stressing about the congregation versus assembly. The fact that they translate 108 times this word as church, which is grotesquely anachronistic. We noted that it doesn't even exist as a word yes. in the apostolic scriptures are being written. Yes. Um, rather than translating it as assembly congregation, primarily because they are trying to segregate specifically from the Tanakh, from the, the Torah, because... In those passages, 
they are not translating it church ever. Right. So it's um, even though it is, if you, the parallel Greek Hebrew is right there. So as they, as you can see here, they're quoting from Psalms in Hebrews, and they're not deciding to translate it as church because now it's in Greek. They're sticking with their original, well, or something similar yeah. to their original. They're, they're they're using congregation. It appears when they're going backwards in time. Right. Because of course there can't be a church before the Holy Spirit was poured out in chapel. So let's. Uh, I like the irony. Um, so, sorry. When did the when did the church come into being? If you tell if you say when the King James was penned, I'll smack you. Warning you right now. I'm getting up. Anybody can help him. This I think is crucial to the explanation of our faith. And especially for you young guys, I really want... Micah, wake up. I really want you guys to understand this concept. This is really important. And the question again is... When did the church begin? Define church. Define church. <laughs> Ecclesia. No! <laughs> when did... Uh, you have, have at least two people, right? You got at least two people. That's good. I like that. The minister and the minister and the All audience. right. So, so what I'm looking for here is let's let's just get rid of the brands. Let's get rid of the the descriptors. We we are part of a group of believers. We believe. Primarily, fundamentally, solely, number one, that Messiah Yeshua is the Messiah. When did that group begin? Greg, Greg says at Mount Sinai. I disagree with Greg. It's rare, but I do. But I'll argue it. I'll win. <laughs> Only because he can't text as I can talk. Nope, waiting for more. Oh, no, Jonathan jumped in. Stand by. Look at that. He's also at Mount Sinai. Whoa, Greg, you've tainted this young Well, man if you already. haven't, if you're talking about as an organization, I guess. I'm not talking about organization. I didn't say the word organization. Did I say the word organization? We did not, although no. the word church was not defined, so we can interpret it as we wish. <laughs> yeah, I, I almost said Constantine. Constantine. <laughs> That's what I almost said. Yeah, I'm sorry. Because I didn't use the word church. I'm not did. talking about that. Did I use the church? Yes. Let me rephrase. <laughs> when did this group that we belong to, to which we belong, begin? Let me, at the beginning, that's close. Let me point you to Hebrews. Oh, whoa, shocker. Chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. Thank you very much. The first guy I mentioned. Abel. Abel! Whoa! I'm thinking Adam and Eve. Adam nor Eve made it into that chapter. But I think Abel was the first one, and they they had came to light up. I think the point here is you belong to a faith that is actually older than Judaism. And Judaism is one of the oldest faiths on the planet. To what faith did Noah subscribe? What was his gig? He said the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know that Noah said that, but Noah believed God. 
and started a home improvement project that took a hell of a long time. Abel brought a sacrifice that pleased God. These guys are long before the call of Abraham, and you can even ask Abraham. He believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. But he wasn't Jewish. He's the first man to cross over. That's the word Hebrew. So Brock is thinking that maybe Noah and his sons were an assembly. <laughs> I like it. Nicely done. Oh, but Greg says, no, that's just a family because they're all related. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably yeah. to find it. If you're talking about when did our family of faith begin, Abel's a great place to start. I think so too. When you're talking about a congregation, an assembly, a group of people who are united by that faith, Sinai is a great place to go. Wow. Hmm. I don't think I could have put it better. Hmm. That's very nicely done. Wow. You get master class points for that. That's cool. So, yeah, our, our faith, and, and, and quite frankly, young men. The concept that you need to get here, what I'm trying to get, make sure that you get, is the concept of needing a Messiah and, and the Lamb of God being sacrificed on our behalf is not new. And it certainly didn't happen at Mount Sinai or at the cross or any of that. It happened before the foundation of the world. That's when the Lamb was slain. And the blood, the righteous blood of our atoning Messiah was poured out even on righteous able so part of the same grouping but yeah to your point i like that coming together as an assembly or a congregation as the english standard would put it uh, began to happen at mount sinai right and you've you've got this long awaited messiah ready to show up and he finally does and What's the mystery? What, what, what's the mystery? Nobody knows what the mystery? The mystery? It's what's the mystery? mystery? Where does he come from? No. But that would be mysterious. Mothetic, that whole deal. Get it? Yeah. No, no, no. What's the mystery? No. That was revealed. That the work was from before foundation of the world. Good. Wrong, but good. It was true. But yeah, the mystery is that Gentiles don't need to do anything different than Jews do. The mystery is that Jews don't have a place in the world to come because they're Jewish. He chose them, specifically, stiff-necked and all. Not because they were the biggest, strongest, or best-looking, although they might have been, but because he chose them through his own will, to bring the Messiah. And through the Messiah, we have salvation. And Jews are not saved because they're Jews, and Gentiles are not saved because they're not Jews. Everyone is saved because they trust in the finished work of Messiah Yeshua. It's as simple as that. But that's the mystery. The Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to get saved. Jews don't get saved automatically because they're Jewish. That's the mystery. Revealed. Bing! Everybody should know. It's surprising me. Some of you in this room might not have known that. When was that revealed? Oh, wow. 
Paul says it was revealed at the cross. Then it was obvious. Might it have been prior to that? It's possible. But the bottom line is, there was a big question in the Master's day. What are we going to do with all these Gentiles? Because regardless of the evangelism methods, there was a heck of a lot of Gentiles who realized these Jews know the real God. And yeah, I agree. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not just a monotheistic God, because there's other monotheistic gods. This one's special. This one's the real one. What are we going to do with all these guys? They came up with a solution. Ritual conversion. God had already come up with a solution. It's called faith. Abraham believed, and it was credited unto him as righteousness. The reason why this is particularly important in the book of Hebrews is because this kicks off an unfortunate conversation that we're going to have the rest, the rest of Hebrews about translator bias. And the writers, the writer of Hebrews, um, whoever he or she may be, um, was apparently a well-learned Jew, as you noted, quoting from an array of scriptures. I which mean, is why many people think it's Paul, which I think is... Some people say it's Luke. No way. It could be somebody else altogether. But Don't think it's Luke either. Um, this particular person was very Jewish. Unfortunately for him or her, the person who's translating into English was not Jewish. And their translations tend to take a heavy um, Christian bias, if you want to say that, a Catholic bias to some degree. Right. Um, and as a result, you have things like starting with this, where congregation is translated congregation because we're talking about Jews. Exactly. And then later, we're going to find that, well, we're going to just start making up what, I mean, is it future tense, present tense, past tense, because that fits better with our theology. That's exactly right. And we'll right. start using words that aren't even there because that fits better with our theology. Because Hebrews, as, as, as ironic as it may be, as much as it makes Messianics uncomfortable because of some of the things it says, it apparently makes Christian translators more uncomfortable. Because they have to change it. Because they have to change it. Yeah, that's exactly right, Joshua. So that means it's really like um, jumbled up. It's all jumbled up in all the translations. It is. Um, jumbled I'm, up mess. I was... Um, I was praising Joshua's father, Rick Spurlock, uh, and Berens Online, that's B-E-R-E-A-N-S, online.org. Um, last Shabbat, we were together uh, because of his Hebrew study. So, as an aside, if you haven't done the Hebrew study that's on Bereans Online, it will change your walk. Hmm. It will give you a very clear understanding of the history of your faith, and what the translators did in their bias in this book. Um, in one uh, instance, Rick actually provides his own personal translation for a, a short passage. Uh, he makes it clear on the front end. I'm doing this deliberately. I'm going to put it in parentheses. I'm going to put it in italics. You're going to know the stuff I added and so forth. And... Uh, so I went into that study this week to prepare for next week's lesson, or the week after, one of the two. And uh, I wanted to find that spot. And it was, I found it. And it was quite a bit shorter than I thought it was. 
and uh, it wasn't the passage that I wanted. So I was looking for a particular chapter. So I searched my, my hard drive, wondering if I had you know, copied it there or something. And I did find it. The whole chapter had been translated. Very cool. And it said it was Hebrews chapter 8 in the BYV version. And I, you know, I couldn't put it in the study guide and I figured out what the BYV was. So I googled BYV Bible version. That brought up some weird stuff, but nothing abbreviated BYV. So I read through it and I was just astonished. I mean, this is probably the best translation of Romans chapter, uh, of Hebrews chapter 8 I've ever seen. It was, it was spectacular. I did put it in the, uh, in the study guide for you, so you'll see that coming up. It wasn't until I got to the footnote uh, on, on the document on my Mac that it said that BYV was the Ben Yosef version. Oh, okay. So ah. I translated it myself. Uh, <laughs> probably. Translated it yourself. I did, yeah. Brigham uh, Young. Yeah, that's what I thought. I looked that up too. Um, that wonder the you Brown Driver that. Briggs version of the, you know, the lexicon <laughs> and all that. But oh, yeah, it was, like that. yeah, it was. It was. It was uh, I actually had to see, you know, five, six, maybe seven points as to how I had done the translation and why, and then had used a specific Greek word out of chapter nine that I. It, it was pretty impressive. So I put it in the study guide, so you guys can appreciate that next week. So, all of that to say, in Hebrews chapters two through four, which I had you read. The writer of Hebrews quotes Genesis 2, Numbers 12, Numbers 14, Exodus 14, Exodus 20, Exodus 31, Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 34, Joshua 1, Joshua 8, Psalm 16, Psalm 33, Psalm 78, Psalm 95, Psalm 105, and Psalm 119, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 49, Job 26, Job 34, and Jeremiah 23, not to mention Jeremiah 31 which is quoted in context. So my question to you is, how is it possible that a Gentile believer reading this letter to the Hebrew, how could he possibly understand the arguments that are being made unless either Joshua is sitting next to him on the couch where he has a full understanding of the Is there some other source that he's supposed to be using? Because if you recall, that's the reason for this study. What about me? What am I supposed to study? What am I supposed to know? What am I supposed to to live by? What? Why would we have all these quotes from the Tanakh? Many from the Torah. If there was something else. Mike? Because, it, it, because every believer in Yeshua should learn to that's it. That's the word. Good for you. It's the foundation of what we believe. What did the Master say about the Tanakh? You search the scriptures seeking life, but it's these that speak of me. 
thoughts on the first four chapters of no, one thing I really liked was the end of chapter three. Okay, well, are we done with angels and moving to Moses, or are we still in angels? After Moses. After Moses, okay. Yeah, and uh, he, goes, he, he mentions that quote about the rest a lot. Oh, um, yeah. Right, but there, there remains a rest for the yeah, children yeah. of God. Isn't that chapter four? He carries it over in yeah, chapter okay, four. Yeah. Starts in chapter three, mm -hmm. where he first quotes that. But then uh, when the, the end, he says... And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? But that so, was a congregation. They were in the wilderness. So see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief, right? So not I, not disobedience. It, right. You expect disobedience. You expect yes! Disobedience. Yes, yes! And so it reminded me so much of James. Yeah. Because it's mirroring belief and obedience. That's exactly right. Together. If you believe, you'll obey. Yeah. Do you believe you, the chariot holds you up? Wait, then so you'll then you must not believed. And that's exactly Judaism's approach. It's like, why would you ever sin if you believe in God? You you believe there is a God, you would never sin. That's exactly right. The only way it's possible for you to sin is if you temporarily go insane. And that's you right. forget the you've God. lost your mind. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's, cool. that's the sage argument yeah. for that. Yeah. But but that's sort of what this is saying. That's exactly right. Sorry, I like I that I like that you you were gonna put disobedience. And, and I think it brings us to sort of a parallel, a, a synonymous mode. Unbelief is demonstrated through a disobedience. Exactly. In the same way that faith is demonstrated through obedience. Exactly. Nicely done, sir. Nicely done. Good. Mm -hmm. Other comments? Great. Outstanding. It should have been in the text. So if you can follow his argument. So he starts off by establishing Yeshua's the Son. Right. Sees how that plays out, and the Son is greater than angels, and so on and so forth. After he gets through the angels, he then talks about him as which, the Son. Which, to your point, just to make sure everybody's listening along, is actually in our sitter. Yeah. Right? So similar. we've got the whole angels thing, but there's nobody compared to this. Good. Yeah. yeah. So then he weaves on, and, he, and I think this is very important. He has to clarify why this great and wonderful being would be in flesh. So he, he talks about that and talks about how that, that's actually for our benefit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He had to be so that he could save us and so right, forth. Right, right. Um, and it's almost like he kind of moves past that because back to the son thing. Well, because he's the son, that makes him the master of the house, whereas Moses was just the servant of the house. So Yeshua is actually greater than Moses, which is like, whoa. Paul's the only one that's done that. Moses and that. Big deal. I brought that out in second Which Christmas. is very helpful with the temple issue. You know, so you get to choose temple, which is all about the Torah, right? Moses' writings, command, uh, command sure. is given through oh, Moses. Yeah. And now Yeshua, it's like, well, Yeshua's greater. Then, to take it to the next level, he weaves in, he's, he's talking about Moses. You think about Jewish, the concept here is stringing pearls. Yeah. And the idea is, it's like, uh, if, you've ever, if you've ever done one of those connect the dots coloring things, if you draw lines randomly, you don't have a picture. But if you follow, you know, one goes to two, goes to four, goes to six, goes to, you know, you end up like, oh, it's a lion. Make you a know. note of that. One goes to two, goes to four. Goes to six. It goes to <laughs> eight. It's not always. Yeah. Yeah. It's more complicated. Yeah. Um, so, you yeah. come back to three. To, to Puppy's going to fly. I don't know why that is. The point is, if you get the right way, one, two, three, four, five, six, then you end up with a picture. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what he's doing here. He's showing... He's taking this argument and he's weaving through the scriptures. So they're talking about Moses. He thinks, 
wait a minute, let's talk about Generation of the Wilderness. Generation of the Wilderness could not enter in. Why can they enter in? Because of unbelief, because of disobedience. Now, what are they entering into? And you, be, you would say they were entering into the land of Canaan. That's what they were entering into. <clears throat> That's what the Psalms is talking about. Could not enter my rest. That is the land of Israel. That end of story, period. Well, Judaism believes quite strongly that basically every single letter in the Bible has multiple meanings. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, so you thought it was just talking about the land of Israel, but it's actually talking about the world to come. Here's how we know that. So he talks about this whole idea of rest, yep. and he pulls in Shabbat. It's another reason why we know this guy must have been Jewish. He pulls in Shabbat from Genesis chapter 7, and it's like, well, we want to be in that kind of rest, right? That's his rest. So God, enter my rest. What is God's rest? God's rest is Shabbat. But it can't just be weekly Shabbat because right. we're not in that rest. Right. So it must be a more permanent Shabbat because God's rest is permanent. But then if it's permanent, then why is God saying today, implying that it wasn't already true, and David is after Moses, so it must be post the entrance to the land of Israel. So and today, post, if you hear... Right, and post Joshua, so it's not talking about the land of Israel. Right. We're actually talking about something greater than the land of Israel. What is that? It's the world to come. And so his point is, he's going to do this throughout the entire book. It's one reason why I, I mean, I appreciate the fact, as much as I hate rushing through uh, the books, and you know me, yeah. um, I feel like this is a book you almost have to. Because this book, if you don't read it, in chunks. Oh yeah, you will miss the entire argument. Right, you have to you have to read fast enough to let your mind catch it, rather than get bogged down in the detail. And you and you're like, okay, well that was chapter one, man. No, you you got to as 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 Greg pointed earlier, chapters four argument on Shabbat actually began in chapter three, which is why it's very dangerous to do what so many people do and rip out one little verse like this one. Uh, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God which is oftentimes you tell people to say we don't have to keep the Sabbath we have it as the people of God whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works Bang. as God did from his Done. and this is oftentimes translated to mean we should stop trying to be obedient we just need to rest and let God and, and that's why the true Bible scholars will tell you never quote well, and here's the irony, you because if you entire chapter. stopped in verse 10, it says, whoever has entered God's rest has also entered, rested from his works as God did from his. Verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In other words, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. <laughs> so, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's right. Which just goes back to what we was talking about earlier today, which, by the way, is also kind of a cool thing. There's a, there's a phrase in, he, in Hebrew. Um, Yom Shekhalosh Shabbat, the day that is always Shabbat. Shabbat is considered a day, obviously, but the world to come is also considered right. a day. That's right. And so throughout this passage, he's talking about today, which is sort of like almost like hayom. a hayom, which is almost like a code word for the world to come. Really kind of fun. A little Hebrew stuff. But the point is that um, Hebrews, out of almost any book in the Bible, is one of the most misquoted, yep. misapplied Absolutely. books. Absolutely. Because of that, they take a very complicated argument. It took him four chapters. They pull one verse out of context. And normally, can't pull two in a row. Because the very next verse will shoot in the foot. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hayom is also a um, code word, if you will, or a, a simile for uh, for the, the, the days of Messiah. Mm. So, I struggle with, is the writer of Hebrews talking about the rest we have in Messiah? 
in the, in the days of Messiah, or is he talking about the Olam Hazeh? Um, I mean, Olam Ba versus the Olam Hazeh. When you get past chapter 8, there's no question. And you'll see that in the, in the next study, I think. It's not the days of Messiah. It's definitely the world to come. Because what did Yeshua, this different priest, come to do? Let's just go around the room. What, what, what did Yeshua come to do? Yes, sir. He came to... Keep it, keep it short. One thing. Yes. He, he came to conquer death. Came to conquer death. It's cute. Which is essentially like saying to raise from the dead. To raise from the dead. He came to resurrect people. So you would fall in the, in the uh, category with the other Orthodox Jews who don't believe that Messiah, Yeshua, is the Messiah but it could be when he finishes doing the stuff that he said and the scriptures say that he must do. So when everybody is raised from the dead, then he's the Messiah, but not right now. I like it. Not what I think he came for. I see you. Hang on. He's older than you. He's still. I, I think that he said to you with the translators of the book of Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Josiah. Save the world. He came to save the world. Did he save the world, Josiah? I think that God does not wish that any should perish, yet the wicked will be destroyed. So, while I like your answer and your enthusiasm, I'm not sure that's why he came. Kind of sound like he preached to people. He preached. He actually preached when, to the spirits in prison as well. Yeah, I yeah. like that. Before the, before the crucifixion, he preached to the people, mm -hmm. he told them mm -hmm. of what to come, and mm -hmm. he encouraged them mm -hmm. to not worry. Mm -hmm. About? About, uh, um, Think about that, because you've got like nine things now. I need one. Yes? I was going to just say simply, to share the good news. To share the good news. How generic. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> They're good news. It's generic. It's fairly generic. Good news. The chattery just kept that song. Good news. What good news might it be that there is salvation in Messiah? That the chariot is coming? That taxes have gone down? Hooray! That he's coming back? I like it. I like it. These are all right answers, by the way, and I'm just messing with you because I can't. Good patient. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm ready. Right. What's that? To bring hope. Oh, wow. No, not, not hope. Hope. No. Hope. 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 Like the diamond. Hope. Yeah. Okay. Not, not the paracleto. Yeah. Um, to give them, so that way they, had, they could hope for the kingdom to come. Hope for the kingdom to come. You know what and I'm going to do? And another thing is so they had hope that they could be saved from their sins. That's really good, too. So now you need to get with Caleb because the two of you have these long theological things that are true. But I'm looking for one thing. And I'm going to give it to you in less time to say something. But Simplify it. Okay. I'm going to give you 65% credit. Because I like the hope thing. Todd, anything? Anything? Scott? Well, he was seeking to save that which was lost. 
You quote are you? <laughs> you're, you're such a poser. Saying, uh, yeah, that's good. All right, so it is all words. It, yeah. I. That's <laughs> <laughs> gonna leave a bruise. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Okay, so all these things are great. Some are better than others. I think you're gonna finish mine. But I, I would say that. He came to provide a way to the world to come. This encompasses everything you just said. Guidance. He came to give us a way to the world to come. That we might have a place in the world to come. That was his mission. That we would have a place in the world to come. Nothing more than that. Nothing less than that. Now, there's, there's a couple of byproducts. Knowing that you have a place in the world to come is certainly going to give you life permanently. And that more abundantly now because you have hope. But really, the Master came to give us a place in the world to come. That's the bottom line. Anything else that we say is part and parcel to get us to that. That is why we look forward and hasten the coming of our Lord. Because when he comes, we roll through that thousand-year period that leads to the world to come. Rick Spurlock puts it another way. He came that we might be restored back to the garden. You can't get past that flaming sword and those cherubim at the entrance to the garden. But we long to be back in the garden as it was in the beginning. He brings us back to the garden. He's the, he's the way. That's the deal. No matter how you want to phrase it. Yes? Would we say to that the world to come and the garden are really the environments where we get to do the thing that we are supposed to do, which Absolutely. is glorify God. In every day, all day long, and that we can, for the, for the first time since this corner of our wall, we will get to draw near physically without the need of an intermediary. That's big. Yeah, cause because I like that whole drawing near thing is what we get into in the next couple of chapters. I like the way that Yeshua, in his verse that he quotes, that where you're talking about the way, the truth, and the life, the next part is no one comes to the Father except through me. That's Meaning, it. like that's the point yes. of the way. Yes, He's the Father yes. and glorifying Him forever. That's right. Hmm. So to bring us back into restoration, yeah, and communion with Him, why He came. And whatever imagery we want to use, whatever melts your butter, that's the bottom line. Um, the imagery of the temple is going to be used uh, beginning, I think, in chapters 7, 8, 9, and so forth. And the, the, the temple was designed that we might be able to physically draw near to the physical presence of God. That's, that's what the priest did. The, you know, we're reading it. And this is perfect timing for us. 
because we're reading Vayikra and Tzav. These are the first, you know, six, seven, eight chapters of Vayikra, Leviticus. Exodus ends, Shemot ends with, you know, they did it all right. They did exactly what he said to do. There's absolutely no deviation. Moses did exactly what he was told, and he assembled the tabernacle, and son of a gun, there it happened. Boom. Why, was he, why did he build the temple? Why did he build the tabernacle? For what purpose? Anybody remember? What? Closeness with God. No. So that he could dwell among us. I guess it's the same thing. I'll give it to you. Sort of an Americanization. Do you know the English translators? No. So yes, yeah, so we could dwell with him. So he could dwell among us. And sure enough, fire, smoke, the whole pillar thing. He was dwelling among us. The problem is, Moses couldn't enter in after that. So we get the whole priesthood. And the first offering, the Ola, is to draw near. That's what it means. Go up. Yeah. Ola. Draw near. So, that's the goal. That's what I want. Final comments. I wonder what it felt like to actually see. I can't cloud imagine. I can't imagine. Forget forget seeing the cloud, but actually, the pillar of fire. actually actually drawing near to him. I mean, does it make the hair on your arms stand up? Sure. Does it make your ears go? You know, I, I don't know. And also the, the feeling that you would get yeah. standing next to everyone. I mean, the, the, the concept here is if you did it wrong, if you didn't follow the protocol, you would die. So to say to your wife, take this sheep and go to the tabernacle there. No, don't go, don't go. Had to be amazing. Had to be overwhelming. There it is. And Messiah is better. I mean, but that's that's what he provides us, is that opportunity. Well, we got all kinds of people that have jumped in to listen tonight. Afterwards, welcome, Ronald Adams, and someone else who's elsewhere. That's great. Glad to have you. All right. Final comments on uh, Lesson 54. Yes, I did want to address yes. your last question. Question. Last question. I had three questions, I think, in the study guide. Are you proud of Yeshua's work on your behalf? If so, in what way? My question is, why is that a question? How can I be proud of something that you didn't do? No, that I have, um, I should not be proud of or thankful for. So I know that your father has, uh, gone out of his way to provide you with a sweet ride. Would you agree? Oh, come on. <laughs> so, is it possible, just possible, Joshua, that you are thankful for the sweet ride and while you're out cruising the chicks, you are also proud of the sweet ride? Are you not proud of what your father has provided you? At the same time, are you not thankful? I caught you, didn't I? 
You didn't expect that. I don't know. You don't know. Oh, oh, oh you got me. Just say, that. help him, help How him. How is he and not I proud of that? Oh, yeah. I, think, I think it can be both. And I, I think that my my goal in the question, Josiah, and, and I mean Joshua, is, is if we're ashamed of the master and what he's done, and ashamed to talk about him, the scriptures are clear that he'll be ashamed of us. And maybe proud is not the right word to use, but we should not be ashamed of what he's done. Or, I think better, we should not be ashamed of the fact that we are totally incapable of gain, gaining a place in the world to come without help. I think pride is a great word to use, especially in today's context. I mean, people are proud of a whole bunch of things that are um, characteristics <laughs> of themselves. Um, proud to be an American. Proud. Oh, I know the song. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of things um, you can be proud of that aren't necessarily accomplishments that you have done. Joshua, I'm proud of you. Appreciate that. It's <laughs> a good point. That's I would good. be. I, I would be more thankful though. I'm proud. Well, I, I wasn't. You I wasn't intending. I mean, Joshua's done this. I don't. I didn't yeah, intend that no, one said, would be posed against the other, but just that. Pride should be, I think, something that can help you stand in the face of adversity. So I think and as a word becomes more and more ungodly, we tend to need to stand for something. Even now, you know, I wear a hat that says American Patriot, and I get looks of daggers at me. I mean, it's... Don't you love it? Yeah, I do love it. <laughs> and that's pride and, right there. And then sometimes I'll just put my jacket back so they can see my pistol, too. <laughs> you know. But, uh... He's yeah. proud of that, yeah. That's, I'm proud of that, yeah. Yes, so. so we can be proud. We can be proud of things. And, like you said, we should be proud in the face of adversity, guys. Yeah. Um, but then there's the other side of it where we should, where we should also be... We should also be thankful of things. No question. We should be thankful for life. We should be thankful for anything that having anything good that's provided for us absolutely and and through that we should be content yes and we've seen in galatians that godliness with contentment is good gain. nicely done gents nicely done you really need to study next week's lesson. you really do all right so spend some time with that my weekend's free yeah there you go scott i wonder would you close us in prayer yeah absolutely Thank you. Father, we're thankful for uh, for the discussion tonight. We lift up Joseph and all the work that he's done to uh, prepare and lead us through uh, these discussions. We pray, Father, we would be found diligent to be in the Word and study and uh, uh, to learn those things that you'd have us to, uh, to learn that you've uh, preserved for us from so long ago. Father, we are thankful and grateful and proud of what the work that you have accomplished. Yes, Father through Yeshua, to help us to have a way Thank you, to the world to come. We pray these things in the name of Yeshua, our risen Savior and Messiah. Amen. 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 Amen.